Well, good morning in town. If you don't know me, my name is Steve Yates. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, by the way, if you have ever been greeted by the beautiful chubby cheek smile of my daughter Marsha on the Welcome to In Town sign, that was what God did with Wellroot and our family. And so just want to thank you again for your support of so many organizations around our city who are bringing Jesus' love in very tangible ways to people. We have been in a series uh, for the last, this is our third week, called Rewired Intentional Practices for Spiritual Health. And uh, just kind of a, a, the meta that we have been talking about, trying to wrap our heads and our hands and our hearts around, is this idea that everything is spiritual. And what I mean by everything is spiritual is simply to say that everything affects us. Everything shapes us. It isn't only disciplines or practices or things we would call spiritual that shape us spiritually, but everything in some shape or fashion shapes us in every way, sometimes more consciously than others, but it does. And because of this, this means that there are a number of values that our culture puts into us just because of the soup we swim in in life that can negatively affect our spiritual lives. Um, and they might not be the things that we think of. There are things like efficiency and effectiveness and performance and productivity, these things that in and of themselves are not necessarily bad things. Yet at the same time, when we think about them in light of our spiritual lives, when we think about them in light of growing in our relationship with Jesus, they can sometimes bring kind of a negative infection to bear on us because we begin to look at um, our relationship with Jesus as a contractual one, that he will only give us love or acceptance, or he will only listen to us, or he will only respond to us when we need something if we have been doing well at this Christian thing, if we consider our relationship with God to be doing well, and usually if we're evaluating that relationship with God by how much or how effectively we're doing a certain series of behaviors, whether that are moral behaviors we're doing or avoiding, or whether there are these more spiritual disciplined behaviors, things like prayer or church attendance or reading our Bible and so on and so forth. The reality is much the opposite. God loves you because God loves you. Scripture does not go any farther than that, and that is a glorious, amazing thing. God literally tells Israel that he made them his treasured possession when they were far off, when they were away from him. He nonetheless grabbed them to himself, and he does the same thing with you and I. He's the initiator. He's the beginner. He's the empowerer of everything that happens inside of us. Now, does that mean we're off the hook? No, of course not. We want to love him. We want to grow in our relationship with God. But we do so out of response and out of love, out of being wooed and welcomed, out of this glorious reception that we've already received and an even more glorious one we will receive one day. We do not have to live in fear of our God. That's one of the glory, most glorious aspects of the gospel we have been, um, because this is a, a series where we're bouncing around a lot, and we're going to bounce around a lot today, 
one of the things that we have been doing is to remind ourselves each and every week of the truths I just said. Uh, so would you, with me, do this, uh, this litur- liturgical reading? I'm going to start reminding us of Jesus' words, and then we can pray together. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Lord Jesus, you are the vine and we are the branches. We long to remain in you. If we bear any good fruit, no matter how small, it is because of your promise that you will remain in us. We trust in you and not in our own work or striving to draw closer to God. Let's pray for a moment. Holy God, we love you. We are not always good at loving you. But I'm so grateful. We are so grateful as we gather here that you love us first and that you love us best. That you were already here when we showed up this morning. We did not have to show up in a certain condition to elicit your presence. You will be with us when we go, no matter how much we're paying attention to this sermon. You have promised and are faithful to remain with us and to keep working on us until the glorious day of your return. Thank you. Bless your word now, we pray in your name. Amen. We're going to talk about the word, the world. We're going to talk about the gospel. Same thing we've been doing every week. But actually, before we do, I, I'm going to bounce back for a second. I wasn't planning on doing this. Um, but I've gotten some questions, and so I would actually like to... Um, answer a question, and that is, why did we say spiritual health and not spiritual growth? If you read books on these subjects, um, and uh, we'll actually be putting out a resource here pretty soon in the newsletter about some resources that you can engage in if you've been interested in this topic, you usually find the idea of spiritual growth as a good thing. It is a good thing. I promise you, we are not combating that by any means in our choice of language here. However, growth is also very much a tenant of the culture that we're talking about when we talk about efficiency and effectiveness and performance, isn't it? We think about growth in organizations. We think about growth um, in, in nature not always being a good thing. Now, usually it is, right? Spiritually healthy things, or healthy things, period, much less spiritually healthy things, often grow. Plants grow. They bear fruit in their season. We literally read that Psalm 1 first week. However, there's lots of things that also grow that aren't incredibly healthy. Think about it. Cancer's tumors grow. Invasive plants like the weeds in your backyard that you cannot seem to kill no matter how much Roundup you use, they grow. Problems often grow. 
And so what we want to be able to focus on is good growth, healthy growth, growth that, as we read again in week one, Psalm 1, produces fruit in season, in the right places at the right times. We do not want to foster, again, a belief in a performance mentality that says, if I am not holding a bar here, I am therefore not a good Christian and God does not love me. There will be many seasons of your life that certain things that we have already talked about will be incredibly difficult and other seasons where they will come incredibly easy. Some of you have experienced that with prayer. There have been seasons of your life where it felt like you could not remain focused for a moment and other seasons in your life where because of whatever circumstance it seemed all you could do was pray. These are good things. And so what we want to do is to shape over these past few weeks and again next week to shape a, a pattern of our life, a feeling in which these disciplines, these actions, these rhythms of our life can rightly build us up into being healthy Christians. That isn't going to look the same for all of us. That's okay. In fact, as we'll talk about next week, it's why we do all of this stuff in community. But that's for next week. As I said, this week, world and gospel. Let's talk about the world first, and let's talk about power. Machiavelli said this, Power is the pivot on which everything hinges. He who has the power is always right. The weaker is always wrong. Now, Machiavelli, uh, if you're not aware of him, was an Italian philosopher and thinker who also was uh, very influential in the European governments of the post-Middle Age period. Um, we often think of him negatively today. In fact, the word Machiavellian is almost always used negatively. However, at the time, he was not considered to be the Antichrist. He was not considered to be someone who had bad advice, but actually very, very good advice about how to live as a ruler and how to gather oneself and one's resources. I put this quote up there because, again, I think that same condition is true for us in our culture as well. While we would demonize, and rightly so, things like greed um, or things like avarice or you know, kind of the, the traditional terms that we use for hoarding and gathering and creating and you know, pushing down on things with power, like having an iron fist or something like that. The reality is, is most of us live lives that are about the accumulation and exercising of power. That isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? Another word we could use for power would be agency. Why do you go to school? You go to school to get credentials, to get skills, to be able to go into a profession in which you can exercise rightly that agency within an organization for the benefit of other people. Why do we parent our children? Well, we parent our children with power and authority. We do not let them run all over us. We give ourselves to discipline and to discipleship and to raising them up again. These are exercises of power. But power can also be very, very negative. Power is what topples governments. Power is what hurts people. 
I got a, a, a unique picture on this that I wasn't expecting to one day recently when I came across the exercise and training routines of NFL offensive linemen. I've been a fan of football my whole life. Like, like it is part of how I'm allowed to have a Southern card, right? Like, I love football. Um, grew up loving college football, um, pro football as well. But it was one of those things that I loved without necessarily understanding every aspect of it. Um, like many of you who might watch certain sports or certain things, we can appreciate things, right, without understanding why something is good or not. It's actually why I really struggle to listen to the commentary on the Olympics because I'll just like see Olympic diver after Olympic diver and be like, ooh, that was awesome. Oh, that was awesome. And not understand why this person actually got a really negative score when they made an awesome splash and this person, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> right? Anyway, NFL linemen, um, offensive linemen are the big guys. If you're not familiar with American football, um, one of the big differences between American football and between many other sports such as soccer slash European football or hockey or basketball is that there are many different very specialized positions that exist on the field at one time. Whereas with basketball or, or soccer, while there are technical differences in the positions, and some of you would argue big differences, Nonetheless, things like body type and athleticism are all fairly similar from player to player. Not so with football. Very, very different people on the field. And uh, offensive linemen are the biggest. They exist to be in a line of five to seven of them or so, standing in front of the quarterback and sometimes a couple of other players. And their full existence is to stop a number of also equally trained professional athletes from pushing past them to get to the ball and the quarterback, and they have limited rules in which they are allowed to make that stop. So they can't just punch them, they can't hold them and bear hug them. There are very specific things they have to do. I go into all of this because I really did grow up believing that basically that position was all about power. You get the biggest guy who can lift the most weight, and then you clone him five to seven times, and you put him in front of a quarterback, and he is going to do his job. If any of you have played football, I am so sorry. I stand incredibly corrected. I repent for my ignorance. There's a ton that goes into the training for an offensive lineman. Yes, there's a lot of strength training. But there's also reaction timing training. They actually have to be quicker than almost everybody but the quarterback who's actually saying to hike the ball. Um, in fact, in, in to some degree, almost like their muscle twitch fibers also have to almost have to fire before their brain registers whether or not the ball is actually moving. They have to have incredible ability to pivot and push to control their own weight. And that word control is, I think, what changed so much for me. I went into my experience of learning about something I'll never be, an NFL offensive lineman, thinking it was all about power, realizing it was all about control. In reality, I think this is actually what our society is usually saying when we think about power. 
We're actually thinking about control. We live in a broken world and in an increasingly, incredibly anxious world with so many things happening around us all the time. In fact, it's one of the reasons we, we didn't go into last week for some of the things I cited last week about anxiety and rest and busyness and stress. Uh, one of the reasons that um, many psychologists believe that children and youth are experiencing unprecedented mental issues is actually just because of the number of inputs they have. They have the ability to be aware of every war happening on the face of the planet at the same time, including body counts. They know where the U.S. financial system is. They know what this political party is doing and that political party is doing at every moment. And while in some respects I believe those are good conversations to have with our children, they also massively increase their level of anxiety and stress and struggle. And we live in that as well, even if we think it just rolls off our backs. It doesn't as adults. And so what do we do? Our actions in work, our actions in life, in the accumulation of skills, in doing what we do and how we do it, all get boiled down to how can I feel secure? How can I feel like I'm in control? I care about my 401k. Why? Well, you know, we could say it's because I want to go play golf somewhere in nice weather. What is it actually? I want to be in control. I want to not worry. I want to not have this burden on my kids and then have to have that hard conversation with them later. Why do we think about that next promotion at our job or that bonus at the end of the year? Because we don't know what financial hardships are going to hit between now and then. And so we work incredibly hard, gathering what we can, shoring up where we can, being very, very careful to have control over our lives, to help ward off that which is uncontrollable. Now, to some degree, right, that is, that's just wise. I mean, we have entire passages, entire chapters of the book of Proverbs that basically say the same thing, that there is great wisdom in not living lavishly and foolishly in preparing for things, obviously. But in our culture, think about how it drives us crazy. Always not knowing what's next always feeling like we have to drive for more, always feeling like we are one bad stock option or one bad medical emergency or one bad thing away from losing it all. Today, I would like to, again, just like last week, look at a body of spiritual disciplines or um, intentional practices but what I'd like to do is to do so, to look at this body of practices in light of that dynamic. Is that kind of hoarding, that kind of, cre that, that kind of creating of wealth, of power, of resource, of skill, of everything, what does the Bible say about that? What does that do to us? I'd like to explore that for a minute before I actually get to the list of spiritual practices. Let's look at the Old Testament first. The concept of having things versus kind of not having things 
is explored most often in the Old Testament in two ways. One of them is getting things, and the primary people that get things in the Old Testament are the people of Israel as they are conquering the promised land. They literally go from being slaves and having nothing to gaining a country. And we walk through them for generations and generations and generations watching the the accumulation of this property take place. What's fascinating is you, if you just told somebody you know, on the street, hey, this nation conquered that nation and took their land, we would make the assumption that they also took their stuff. I mean, why not? If we're going to take morals and put them to the side for a second, like if I want stuff, I'm not going to say no to the free stuff that I'm going to take and steal. However, God specifically brings a different culture into the Israelites. And that culture is that actually, while they are going to be taking possession of the land, most of the time they are not taking the stuff. Sometimes they're even letting people go or they're devoting things to destruction specifically because it is more important for them to remain who they are. Get this, this is key. It is more important for them to remain who they are than to have more. It is more important for them to remain who they are than to have more. So here in Joshua chapter 7, we actually see um, one of these moments where the Israelites come in, they defeat a small uh, kind of micro country, warlord city, and they are actually told to devote it to destruction. But one family goes in specifically and takes some things. And in fact, this guy is so terrified of what he's done, he literally goes and he hides them right away. He's actually put to death for this. But he's put to death. It's fascinating in the Old Testament, the reasoning that he is put to death is because of the idea not that he couldn't somehow make restitution or give stuff away or just chuck what he had in the fire along with everything else, but because by the very action of doing it, he had changed who they were to a different people, a people who wanted more, a people who needed more, instead of a people who relied on a God who told them where to go next and gave them enough. We see it in the Old Testament sacrificial system. This is a passage in Isaiah that you can look up later to see the full text. But Israel was also told to give a lot away, not only to be very, very gracious to foreigners and to the poor and to the needy, but also to simply sacrifice it to God. I mean, if you added up the worth of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, can you imagine how much more wealthy they would be if they were not killing cattle all the time? That's a lot there. And yet there is this giving away and giving away. In a fascinating sense, even though when they're able to do this, God sometimes still takes them to task. Why? Because it was never about the giving in the first place. Again, it was about how does this establish who you are and who am I? It was never contractual. 
So we see passages like this in Isaiah, which Jesus later references as well. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of well-feed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you appear before me, who's required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure them. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. What the prophet Isaiah speaks, the Lord speaks through Isaiah, is that it is about who they are, their hearts, and not their sacrifices that mattered. Even in the action of giving, there was even something deeper, who they were. Let's keep going to the New Testament. In the same way, I'm just going to refer to this. Jesus talks a lot about giving and hoarding. By this point, we're talking a lot more individually. uh, That His teaching begins to swing to much more of a Greek mindset rather than a Hebrew. And so while he speaks a lot to the people of God and sometimes to Israel as a whole, he's also talking very specifically to disciples and individual people within crowds. And so he gives a lot of advice about day-to-day matters, a lot of teaching about day-to-day matters like money. He gets a lot of questions about money. You could do a whole study simply on what did Jesus, someone who had sometimes less than no pennies to his name, nonetheless teach on money. This is one of the most famous of those teachings. He interacts with a man who's called in gospels slightly different things, rich young man, rich young ruler. Basically, it was a person who had both wealth and a position, authority, power, control that was related somehow to that wealth. He interacts in kind of a rabbinical way with Jesus. He wants to know, am I enough for God? Um, Have I done enough? Am I enough? Am I good enough? All of these things. And Jesus gives a unique answer. It's an answer that's, that's descriptive and not prescriptive. Jesus doesn't give the same answer to everybody, so it's not like a bar. To specifically this man, he says, sell all your stuff. Then come, follow me. And what's fascinating about the story is that the gospel writers cite that the man goes away sad because he had much wealth. We could almost say too much wealth. Later, Luke records another story. Jesus looks up while he's with his disciples, and here again he sees an interaction of finance. This time, though, he sees a woman, a widow, who is giving offerings at the synagogue, financial offerings, and she puts in to the offering all she has, which is literally a pittance, famously two mites. Fascinating that, again, you have someone who, just as the rich young ruler was um, identified in his position by his power and his control, so too do we have this woman who, because of the culture of her day, is identified as poor. She isn't just poor. There's no way she's ever going to be not poor because she has very limited ways of working. If she was known as a widow, it's actually likely that she's old, older. And Jesus says to her, 
or, or, or about her. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of these other people, for they have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Ironically, again, in both cases, the actual focus becomes so much less about the actual giving or not. And it is about the identity of the person. Is this rich young ruler actually going to be saved by giving up everything he has? No. And yet it is something about who he is that is the problem. This woman and her glory, is she somehow made better because of the two cents she is dropping in? No. The beautiful thing is that you have a poor person who still wants to offer things to God. It is about who she is. So what do I want to do with this? What do we do with this? This is a list of um, seemingly unrelated intentional practices or spiritual disciplines. If you're not familiar with, with some of them, let me just walk through them really, really quick. And then I'd like to apply this concept onto this list. Fasting. Fasting is a common religious practice, in fact, across many different religions, of denying oneself food. Sometimes other things, but traditionally food for a time. And in the experience of being hungry, one is supposed to be more focused, perhaps have more time to pray or reflect or commune with, um, with the divine. And it is used often in the Old Testament. Often prayer and fasting are put alongside one another. Tithing or giving. Old Testament word would be tithing, where there was a very specific amount that was required by the law to be given to God's people, from God's people. Today, we talk about offering and offering our whole selves. And that includes a financial component. You don't really want to make the argument that tithing's not in the New Testament because tithing comes from the concept of 10% and never in the New Testament do you ever see someone even giving something so low as 10%. But that's a talk for another day. Um, but again, we have this giving service. I don't think we often think about service as giving until we get home from the service opportunity that we have just done and we're exhausted and we're tired and we are uncomfortable. What about repentance? We don't talk about that a lot in our society outside of uber spiritual situations. But think about the cost of actually saying sorry, of actually repenting. Think about the relational tension that has to be worked through. What about obedience? Just fundamentally, the idea of actually following what God wants for us. I talk about that a lot with teenagers. What's actually the cost of this, the emotional cost, the social cost? Here's what, I, what I'd like us to be able to hold today. If all of these spiritual practices or disciplines that are in some ways seemingly unrelated that Scripture calls us to have this concept of giving away, of not hoarding, of actually releasing control of something that otherwise our culture is saying, it is a good thing to hold on to this. 
It is a good thing to hold on to your health. It is a good thing to hold on to your money. It is a good thing to hold on to your time. It is a good thing to hold on to your pride and to your self-autonomy and authority and to only let those things go when it is otherwise beneficial for you. What Scripture says instead is that it is actually core to our identity that we would be a people who are not that, who are open-handed and who are releasing these things over and over and over again. It is a challenge to us to consider what these things do to us, not just their, again, utilitarianness, but their functionality. What does it do to you if you have a regular practice of saying that food is not the most important thing? We're actually going to be in a couple of weeks um, having a day of fasting and prayer here as a church, and we're going to be providing a guide for you, um, and we would love for you to try that out with us. Um, again, we're not building it up to be some super spiritual practice that has um, some sort of, of out-of-the-norm meaning exactly the opposite. We would love, if it's something you've never tried before, to begin norming it with you. What about giving? Again, this idea that we, we, you know, what does it mean for us to give and to give a lot? I know that's a really weird subject. I mean, I grew up in situations where, like, the plate got passed when we still passed plates, and people, like, you know, peeked at the checks that were thrown in. Like, you brought, even if you didn't have a lot to give, you were going to give it in cash and give it in ones so that people could, like, see that you were giving a lot so people didn't think you were cheapskate. I remember growing up and watching people saying, if you sow this seed of money here, you will get this back over here. I'm just saying, I don't, I don't care how much you make. And in some ways, I don't care how much you give to the church. I mean, I care. Holly and Jimmy just were really sad I said that. But what I mean is this. <laughs> What's it do to you? What's it do to you when you perpetually live like no matter how much you make, you are never going to use it as effectively as your next-door neighbor. In fact, you are literally running up the white flag of keeping up with the Joneses. Why? Because you never will. Because the Joneses get 100% of what they take home, minus all the other things, and you don't. What's that do to you? What's it do to you if you live a life of service to others that is not connected to a tax exemption or to community service hours or to making your own conscience feel better? I was talking with my wife about this, and she reminded me of opportunities we've had before where, like, you know if you've ever shown up at the homeless shelter um, to volunteer, and, and I really do mean this with all due respect, both to the homeless, homeless shelters, and those of you who volunteered. But like on Thanksgiving, really all they need is a warm body, right? Like they're pumping people through and there are families that go and they want to serve and they want to feel good and they want to do different things. But what does it do if your family knows a homeless person by name? What's it do if you have to have awkward conversations with your kid on the way home from volunteering 
about why they heard that word spoken by that person in that conversation. Repentance. Saying sorry is cheap. I'm talking to any politician about that. Living that out is incredibly difficult. Again, you know, we've mentioned before Dr. John Cox, a friend of some of you here at InTown. One of the primary shifts in parenting over the last 50 years has been an emphasis in books on what it means to repent to your children. Now, on one hand, daddy yelled at you and daddy's sorry, but you shouldn't have been doing that. Like, that's how I lay that out way too often. What's it actually look like for me to have to repent to my child to be sorry and to not be Superman in her eyes? There's cost. Here's the point of all of these things. God wants that cost, that giving, that reliance upon him, that lack of accumulation, that lack of extra life insurance in the non-financial aspect of it. He wants that to be an identifier of who we are. And so again, if everything is spiritual, then in some respects, I care much less about your regular fasting schedule or how much you give or don't give to the church or the program of service that you are a part of or not. What I wonder as a pastor and as a Christian about my own soul is do I have rhythms of my life that God has wooed me into because of his love that help me be the kind of person who in every way Discipline or not is reliant on him. Who doesn't live my life my way and then goes to him when I really need stuff. Who doesn't think I am enough 98% of the time and I take my identity and my gusto and my machoism and all my stuff from that except when a horrible tragedy happens. Can we be a people? Can you be a person who, again, because of, not to prove to, but because of God's incredible love for you, sees a life lived continuing to need that God who loves you so much as okay, as enough, as more than enough. This is what intentional practices are supposed to do to move us to spiritual health. They are not to move us to places of flourishing or hashtag blessed or any of the other versions of what it means to have it all together. We are, in fact, supposed to be a people who, because of our own lifestyle choices, in addition to our own sin and our own humanness, are people who don't have it all together. And that is okay. 
because of our God. We are so excited to be talking to you about more of these intentional practices. We could go so in-depth on any one of these, but I want you to see past them for today. And we've kind of done that every week, haven't we? I don't think I even realized this until I really started getting into this series that it was actually less about the spiritual practices, intentional practices, spiritual disciplines, whatever we want to call them themselves, and more about who is the person that because of God leading us into these things that we are becoming. And so each week we've had a prayer. Psalm 40 says this, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. But then the psalmist says, Behold, I've come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. Notice the pattern even there. My name's already in your book. It's not because of offerings, but you have changed me so much that I delight to do your will. Let's let that be our prayer. And let's pray it now. Holy God, we indeed beg that of you, that we could be those who do your will. And that we could see that doing your will in these hard, costly areas that are incredibly countercultural are actually so wonderful and good. Lord God, let, uh, let me, even as a pastor, not take how hard that word is to hear for granted, whether in my own life or people here. But let us together support one another. And Holy Spirit, please support each of us in having the hard conversations about what it means for us to be people who are dependent and okay. Pray all this in your name. Amen.